now. And now. From Greater Santon and beyond. Get ready for the Santon Times Hour. With your host, Alexander. Ladies and gentlemen, everyone in between and beyond, this is the Santon Times Hour on Mix 93.8 and also available on all good podcast platforms. I'm Alexander Leipner and this is edition 124. It's week 30 of 2023 and we're over the July hump and I'm excited to be with you once more. If you would like to send through your questions, your comments, your feedback, uh, you can do so using the email address uh, editor at santantimes.ca.za. You can connect on social media at Santantimes or you can visit the website www.santantimes.co.za. And if you're listening live on Mix 93.8 and uh, not on the podcast at a later stage, well, the WhatsApp line is open on 0848 And you can send through messages like this one from uh, Sebastian last week. Uh, you know, the original version would have sufficed. You didn't have to ruin it even more and make people hate the song even more with the remix. Well, hate's a bit of a strong word, but I think uh, that was uh, with reference to Aqua's Barbie Girl uh, that we played last week. Uh, I think we've recovered from that, though, subsequently. A special warm welcome to everyone listening in Johannesburg and Pretoria, across South Africa or anywhere else in the world, online or on air. Wherever you are, I'm happy to report that all is well in Santonland. I'm joined once more by my man behind the mixing desk, Vincenzo. Good to see you again. And uh, yeah, here we are. Another week of the Santon Times Hour. It's been an interesting week that has passed, though. I must tell you, uh, Vincenzo, I had a chance to visit the Heineken factory in Beng which is there on the way to the Val. If you've ever driven past there, you have that very distinctive beer smell in the air when you hit the highway. And I uh, got to see how Heineken Silver is uh, made and packaged and distributed. Very interesting. It's a massive operation and uh, quite remarkable. That's all happening in our backyard. And uh, yeah, geez, I'm exhausted. I had to wear safety boots, you know, the, the reflective vest, the, the glasses, the whole lot. I mean, anyone who's in manufacturing, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And those boots are not, uh, they're not for sissies. Uh, I mean, I was pretty knackered after walking around an entire factory from start to finish. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Then I also had the pleasure of emceeing the Digital Transformation Summit at the Saturn Convention Center, which was another interesting day out. And uh, I guess the months leading up to the December break or the December end of year are certainly going to be a busy or get busier when it comes to hosting awards, gala dinners, and corporate conferences, but uh, I'm ready for it. Bring it on. Coming up on this week's show, ever been bullied or been called a bully? Well, my first guest sheds a light on the rise of bullying at school and also in the workplace with some fascinating discoveries. You don't want to miss this conversation. Then Santon's oldest bar has received a makeover, and with so much history, I catch up with the general manager to chat about the new space. Uh, more coming up on that. Then after that, one of uh, our regular voices is back on the show to chat about Zimbabwean millionaires making it big around the world. And finally, I wrap up the hour with one of our favorite comedians who's heading to Santon with a brand new show. This and more is coming up shortly. There are no headlines this week, but let's dive headfirst into the week's show with a bit of music. It's Lawrence Semeca with All Night to the Sun right here on the Santon Times Hour on Mix 93.8. Promote your brand. Advertise your business. Our audience could be your next client. Contact the Santon Times today. The best of talk and music in one hour. 
This is the Santon Times Hour. This is the Santon Times Hour on Mix 93.8 and also available on all good podcast platforms wherever you get these uh, in the world, uh, as well as uh, Amazon Music and Afripods of late, which is really exciting. Well, as we kick off this week's hour, I'm uh, thrilled to be joined by uh, the author of a very interesting book. She's authored quite a few books, but she's also got a very dynamic background in media, journalism, and uh, her name is Marion Schur. She's written a book called Big Bully, An Epidemic of Unkindness. And uh, Marion, as we get things going and uh, ease into this conversation, give me a bit of an idea as what the inspiration was behind this book, Big Bully. Well, the inspiration behind it came from a book that I wrote in 2001 that was published in 2001. And in that book, Surfacing, we had 11 stories from 11 different people of their lived experiences with mental health. And so many of those stories mentioned bullying and how bullying had almost triggered off many of their mental health issues. And of course, you can't live in today's day and age without being aware of social media bullying. It's such a big thing. So Mm. yeah, I decided that no one else had written a book on it, especially addressing adult issues as well. That's why I did the book. Well, it is a big topic. I'm sure there's a lot of parents who can talk about uh, bullying in uh, you know their kids' lives. But also the book uncovers stories of bullies in, in very different settings, not just schools, but also workplaces and at home. And uh, what are some of the impactful stories that you came across when you were researching this book? Gosh, there were quite a number. One of them, if I start with the teens, to give you a small example, you know, with teenagers or kids and bullying today because of screens you know you hide a bully can come out and punch someone and they're a bully but you know when they hide behind screens it's very insidious and I heard of a young girl of 11 who I mean this sounds crazy but she'd actually sent nude photos to her boyfriend which sounds insane Mm. and of course 11 years old hello they break up And he goes on to send them out to all his friends and you can imagine the devastating effect on her life. She is now labelled a slut and that's it. You know, how she knows she's going to get after those. I had many like that. In terms of adult bullying, um, some of them were quite creepy. One is actually a former colleague of mine who moved into um, a new development, a townhouse block, and this guy pops up and says, you know, greeted her and said, I'm your neighbour, and they were both moving in. He said, would you like to go out for a coffee? And she thought nothing of it, and she goes out for a coffee with him. The next thing, as she's coming home from work a few days later, she sees a message pop up on her phone and starts saying, oh, you look very nice today. I like that, whatever she was wearing. And this got creepier and creepier to the point where she went to the police and eventually she had to move out of the block. Whereas before social media, she probably could have closed the door. I don't know if it had got creepier than that. Um, There are just so many in emotional bullying Um, another one that really got me was because we all you know we hear so and so in a bad relationship and we think oh why did they stay you know why didn't they get out of it there's so many reasons and the one started a relationship that started at school they a boy and a girl at school uh, went to university and her first sign was when she went to university in Grahamstown he went to university in Johannesburg when she got there he said He's going to phone her at the same time, say, 8 o'clock every night. It was, in fact, 8 o'clock. There was a reason for that. 
And the reason was that he knew that if he phoned at eight o'clock, she couldn't go jawling with her friends. She had to be in that phone box waiting for his call. And to get a long story short, they did get married. They had two children and this control. It stopped her following the career she had wanted because he said, you know, I want you to be at home for our children and so on and so on. It took an awful lot for her to get up and finally walk out that door. And um, that that was so similar to so many other stories I did. And then in the workplace, uh, perhaps some of the most insidious stories, for instance, very briefly, someone that you work on a presentation, you come up with all these great ideas and you walk in a meeting only to see one of your colleagues has presented all your ideas before you. And that that's another kind of bullying or in the case of. Uh, this person actually had a black colleague and they were horrified because the boss had said to this black colleague, what language do you speak at home? And this person had said, well, English. Oh, yes, but what other languages do you speak? It's, you know, of course, that board, that's very much racist as well as bullying. Sure, so I could go on and on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it just also just illustrates how the, the technology and the online environment has just aided in amplifying bullying uh, from maybe what we remember bullying be when we were at school. Uh, but now having mm. this technology and having these devices that can now sort of just take this to a whole new level just makes the entire thing unbelievably frightening. Now, Marion, also just to contextualize this for people, you're, you're not a psychologist, you're not a uh, somebody who comes from a medical background, but you come from a, a media and journalistic background. And, and you must have seek the advice of experts to give you maybe a little bit of insight or, or more um, layers to analyzing some of these situations. And what, what are some of the advice that these experts gave you in terms of dealing Dealing with with bullying and kind of where it's at. Well, first of all, thank you. Yes, I'm, I always make a point of letting people know I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist or any type of mental health professional. I work very closely with SADAG, who are a wonderful organisation. If there's anyone listening and this resonates with many of these stories, SADAG's always available to listen. South African Depression Anxiety Group. And they're always very helpful finding me the right experts. And of course, I've been writing on mental health for 29 years. So yes, I indeed do have experts. Also, I'd like to say that the book would never have happened without Lundbeck. You know, people always have a go at pharmaceuticals, but they were absolutely amazing and backed me all the way. And in terms of what psychologists say, in all the books I do at the end of each chapter, I do try and give tips. It also helps that my own daughter is a clinical psychologist that that was quite a good thing too. But the sort of advice they give is very much that your children, for instance, or your teens, they must be comfortable enough to open up to you, or there should be people in schools. I mean, I know schools have school counsellors, but the children I spoke to, young adults, they they don't feel that's any good. They feel if they go there, nothing happens, nothing changes. And I think more than what professionals say, I think in in terms of teenagers, the schools and the parents, there's no interaction or very little that needs to change. In terms of relationships, I think it's a very good idea, professionals, and they're not just looking for work, because believe me, psychologists and psychiatrists are fully booked up. But what they say is, you know, that obviously therapy not so much you need a psychiatrist and be put on medication but therapy definitely helps relate you know and there's psychologists fall under so many various um spe- it's a very broad spectrum so you would find someone for instance as a re- expert on relationships you could phone sadag and ask them they'll tell you exactly where do you live okay we've got somebody in your area that would be a good person for you it is about talking to someone and getting help there's no one size fits all answer i can't give you an answer on what would stop a bully bullying mm. 
Um, what I can say is if it's, for instance, in the workplace, what an HR executive told me was, and this was very interesting, well, he's he's more than an HR, he's got a PhD in this topic, and Dr. Ruane Koch, and he says, one thing's important, because a lot of this kind of thing in a workplace is he said, she said. Yeah. Keep a record of every single incident. This is for the workplace, you know, write it all down. I suppose that works in any bullying scenario. So I can't really, you know, off the top of my head, think of anything specific that they, you know, it's not tick boxes that you do, but it definitely is not keeping it inside because if you keep it all inside, psychologically, it's it's definitely going to do great damage. Yeah. Well, interesting that you're talking about uh, HR departments. I believe one of the other interesting findings that you had, uh, because most people say, well, if you can have an issue in the workplace, uh, you know, go to HR and they're going to sort it all out for you, is that, is that very often that HR is not necessarily always playing on the side of the employees? I don't know about not necessarily always. I didn't find any instance where they helped. Really, to me, Alexandra, it looks as though HR very much are there for the bosses, mm. not for the employees. And as someone pointed out to me the other day, well, the bosses pay them. So, yeah. Now, I did not find HR was there for the employees. Yeah. Not at all. Almost almost sounds like it needs sort of a, a King 3 real uh, think as to how, you know, boards and CEOs and executive teams uh, report and interact. It almost feels like HR needs to have uh, its very own sort of King 3 format where it sort of is removed from the business to an extent that it can work on both sides, both the employees and uh, the boss's side. But I suppose that's another conversation for a whole nother day. And, uh, and probably the question is, you know, in whose interest would that be? But back to your book, how would you uh, say you can identify potential bullies? Because I suppose uh, there's the people who are being bullied, but then there's the bullies themselves. And there's probably a lot of parents listening and saying, well, you know, my child isn't a bully. Ah, I'm so pleased you brought that up. Because I think that was one thing I really would have loved to have found would be someone that came forward and said, I was, I am a bully. I had one young man did come forward because Westerford High School, I really want to give a shout out to them in the Cape. They've been absolutely fantastic. They were the only school out of a, a dozen or so emails I sent out requesting help from schools on this. They're the only ones that came back to me. They're a brilliant high school in Cape Town. And one lad in a group that I spoke to, he turned around and said he had bullied somebody on social media and it actually had backfired on him. And he'd lost a lot of friends through it. He was a very good looking young man. He probably was looking at him, one of these people, very confident. And he'd been a bit of a hero, I think, before. But after this, which is unusual, people turned against him. Now, how do you identify a bully? Gosh, that's very difficult because I think you can't always identify them until they're actually bullying. So what can happen, for instance, I had one story in the book with a young woman who said when she was at school, as a teenager and sort of almost matric, she had a friend and she thought this is her best friend. But the minute she'd wanted to be with other friends, this friend said, well, you, I won't go out with you if you see them. That's a kind of bullying. But at the same time, that was her best friend. I think there's that's a very subtle bullying. I think, how do you tell a bully in the workplace? It's very difficult because funny enough, you know, I mean, we've all had bullies in bullying incidents. And I was told a story about an editor that I'd worked with many, many years ago. And this woman made this other employee's life a misery. But to me, she'd been fine. So identifying them, it, it's quite difficult. What I would like to say, you mentioned parents. And I think one of the biggest things I hope comes out of this book is parents look at their ch children more objectively and say, 
is my child a bully? And that can be looking at your child and seeing if he leaves people out of things. Mm. Because, you know, just not inviting someone to a party these days, those kids are going to go online and see, oh, everybody else was at whatever it was. I wasn't invited. That's yeah. bullying. Yeah. It's interesting that you say that. And was it just talking about the workplace as well, where in many instances people will say, well, he's an effective manager or she's just, you know, she's just uh-huh. a strict boss, you know, so she just does that. Uh, that's her style of doing things. But I'm sure you and I could spend probably the next hour talking about people that we've worked with or the people that we've dealt with, mm-hmm. where we can say for, for certain that every interaction or every engagement with a particular manager or a particular person uh, was for sure, not just an assertive person. It was really somebody who was, I don't know, on a completely different strain. Mm. Yeah, it, it's very difficult because even in the workplace, one of the things that came out when I said to people they'd been bullied very badly and I said, well, why didn't you just leave? People are scared to lose their jobs today. That's a big issue. So people would rather hang on. But, you know, it is someone said to me that they feel maybe when I said women can be much worse than men in terms of bullying in the workplace. And they said, well, women have got to maybe prove themselves, show they're tougher because, you know, women bosses, not everybody is used to having a woman boss. So if you're a woman boss, have you got to be tougher? Have you got to be seen to be, you know, bossier? Mm. It, it's a difficult one. But women definitely, I found... Maybe it was just the stories I did. Some of them were really awful and they take terrible advantage of the employees. You know, if they say, oh, well, I need you to do this, this and this. So suddenly your eight hour day becomes a 12 hour day. Are you going to say anything? Yeah. Are you too scared? Yeah, that's the that's the big question, right? And I think a lot of people are probably either nodding their heads, uh, you know, listening to this, uh, reflecting yeah. on maybe some situations that they've been in. But to kind of end this on some sort of high note, I mean, the subtext to this book is called An Epidemic of Unkindness. And I'm assuming there's yes. also a call for people to become kinder in the workplace, at home and at school. Hashtag be kind. Uh, my publisher's bookstorm came up with that hashtag be kind. You know, it's such simple things. For instance, I was at the gym the other day and because of the weather, the window had messed it up where I was in the gym and a big burly chap, weightlifting type, he drew a heart into the steam. And I thought, oh, that's really nice. And I did hashtag be kind. And I thought, I wonder if somebody will see that and take it on. And for me, what that means is you're at the till paying at pick and pay or checkers or wherever you're buying your goods. Just say please and thank you. If you watch other people, and anyone listening to this, do this. Watch other people. See how few actually say please and thank you. Another thing, if you're a waiter, a waitress, somebody will sit at a table and they just hold up their hand and say, oh, can I have a, can I have a Coke? Another, bring another Coke here or whatever. Not, oh, sorry, please, when you've got a minute, do you think you could bring me another Coke? And I think the thing is they're setting those examples for their children. So a big issue is our child bullies are they child bullies because their parents are bullies? And I have seen that a number of times that that does absolutely does happen. Well, it's a fascinating conversation. And if you want to delve more into this topic, well, go pick up a copy of Big Bully, An Epidemic of Unkindness. I've been chatting to Marion Scher. She's the author of this book and has been doing some very interesting research into the space of, of bullying and bullies, especially now with technology being such an enabler of uh, of you know people who are bullies. And they can now amplify that uh, into a totally different space. But I think the one big takeaway is also, can we be kinder? in a a world that's become ever-challenging and uh, and ever more uh, tense. Marion, I thank you so much for making the time to be on the Santon Times Hour. It's the bottom of the hour. We're going to take a quick musical break and more of the Santon Times Hour right after this.
Get up, show up and level up. Make the move and join Virgin Active. You'll score a gym bag, July free, plus activate a world of rewards. Discovery Vitality members get even more. Get started. Call 0860, get fit or visit your nearest club. Bag big rewards. Virginactive.co.za. T's and C's apply. The Santon Times Hour continues. You're listening to the Santon Times Hour on Mix 93.8 with Milk and Sugar featuring John Paul Young and Lovers in the Air. Taking you into the second half of the Santon Times Hour, my name is Alexander Leibner and you know how this works. If there's anything that sounded good on the show and you didn't get all the details or you wanted to find out a bit more, well, you can visit the show notes on santontimes.ca.za for a detailed breakdown of everything discussed on this week's edition. Also, be sure to check out the social media accounts at Santon Times and feel free to engage, send a tweet, a voice note, a DM, whatever works for you. And you can also use the hashtag Santon Times Hour. Now, the Lord's Bar at the Prote Hotel by Marriott Balalaika Santon has undergone an extensive 2 million rand renovation to mark its 74th year of existence. It's also one of the first bars in Santon known as the Heritage Bar of the hotel and holds a very significant historical uh, space in the Santon landscape. I caught up with the Balalaika Hotel's general manager, Natalie Buerta, on the occasion of the new Lord's Bar opening and kicked off our chat by asking her about the history of the bar and the hotel. So the hotel was established in 1949. Actually, there's so much heritage. Next year, this hotel is 75 years old, or parts of it. The original part of the hotel was actually Lord's Bar. So part of the original building in 1949 was Lord's Bar. And the great thing about Lord's Bar is it was the first bar in Santon to ever allow females into the bar. Go women power there. The hotel itself has grown throughout the years. Originally in 1949, it was actually, in the 40s, it was actually a watering hole for horses. And then thereafter, it slowly became a, a full-on hotel. It started with 30 rooms and a thatched roof and a cobblestone with Lord's Bar. And then slowly and surely became like the biggest place to hang out in the 80s. And then after that, we, we added on 150 rooms and became Balaika. We've always been with Proteo for, for the, the whole period. And then later on, in about 1995, just before the World Cup, we added on Crown Courts. So we're now a 330-bedroom hotel with lots to offer. We have three bars, two restaurants, plenty of venue space, etc. The conferencing came on. In 2020, I decided to take COVID as a great opportunity. It's when I came on board. Um, and I took COVID as an opportunity to actually refurbish the hotel. So we started bit by bit. The last on the list was actually Lord's Bar because it had so much heritage behind it. Well, we're going to get into that shortly because I want to quickly just rewind for uh, a few sentences. When you were talking about the Balalaika, and a lot of people are looking at it now and saying, but what are you talking about? It's in the middle of the city. It's opposite the JSE. Like you're talking about horses. You're talking about all these things. But the Balalaika used to be like an island between Johannesburg and Pretoria. I mean, there was nothing. Then there was the Balalaika. And then there was nothing again until you got to Pretoria, right? Yeah, that's true. Literally, it was a watering hole for horses uh, right in the beginning in the 1940s. And then eventually a, an English owner started the Balalaika. And that's why there's a lot of actually English names throughout the hotel, like our conference rooms, are actually named Cambridge, Oxford. And then we have Lord's Bar. Balalaika was in the middle of nowhere. It was like a little island on its own. And then eventually became like a watering hole for people. Yeah. <laughs> that's where everybody used to hang out. 
and then slowly but surely it grew to what it is today. Well, let's talk about this watering hole for people because that's one of the reasons why we're chatting. The Lord's Bar, which, like you said, is is like a cornerstone uh, of Santon. A lot of people often don't even know about it because it's sort of hidden away in the hotel. A lot of people do know about it if they've been visiting it for many, many years. You've revamped it now. Tell us about the revamp. How did this all come about and what have you done? I wanted to keep the authenticity of the whole place. We're not the minimalist kind of vibe where... We are very much old English country. We've got great gardening, etc. So I wanted to keep that English old cigar lounge feeling with the revamp of Lord's Bar. And I wanted to keep some of the heritage in. So in Lord's Bar itself, the door has been fashioned to actually represent 10 Downing Street. Kind of like as a montage to the English owner that originally bought the hotel. So instead of 10 Downing Street, we have 20 on our door. And instead of Lord of the Treasurer, we are Lord of Consumption. But the door itself is the exact replica, except it's blue. Lord's Bar itself, inside the, the bar, we've tried to keep a lot of the history on the walls. So there's a lot of stuff of original meetings with you know Julius Malema when he was part of ANC Youth League and the first openings like in Santon when JC opened and 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 a lot of those newspaper clippings we actually wanted to incorporate into the new revamp of Lord's Bar. Let's go into some of the decor details. What have you changed? What have you kept? What can people expect when they walk into Lord's Bar? We've changed quite a bit. Uh, We actually cordoned off the outside terrace now so that it's a little bit more private. We took out the tables and chairs and made it more with, you know, lounge furniture. Uh, We changed the wood so that it's all blue. We've changed the tiling, the carpet, the furniture, the lighting. We even changed the wallpaper on the roof to incorporate a little bit of age into it. I mean, we even went as far as uh, staining the speakers with like a nicotine stain so that it actually incorporated. But at the same time, we still managed to keep a little bit of modernism into the, the actual bar itself by introducing, we've got a vape vending machine. Uh, we did glass tiles on the floor. So a lot of the things are old, to look old, but still very, very much new. And then you've also done uh, a menu. You've done a bit of a, a, a twist on the drinks. Tell us a little bit more about that. We have our signatures, um, you know, the, the guys do the apple aperitif. We, we want to do some of the old signature cocktails, like the whiskey sours, etc., so that we can still keep within the whole fashion of Lord's Bar. But the menu itself is more of a snack menu. Chef and I came up with the menu ourselves. Chef is Chef Cabello. And the menu is very much in line with, we have a bit of vegan there for a tapas. And then we also have like little snacks and platters, etc., for for normal guests to eat. So we've got like pop balls, deep fried pop balls with, you know, infused with cheese and a, a chili jam, a chili tomato jam. We've got things like pulled lamb tacos, you know, good old favorite is Rizzoles. We just changed the stuffing and yeah, plenty much more on the menu. You need to actually come check it out. And what are you hoping to now do with the bar going forward? Have you got any interesting plans, any interesting ideas that you want to sort of activate in the space? I would like to eventually start bringing back quiz nights. You know, quiz nights was actually so popular back in the 80s, 90s. They actually used to be these pub quiz nights. um, And I'm hoping to slowly introduce that. Right now, I'll start off with the launch, just make sure that my clients and my customers and my guests are happy. But eventually, I want to go back to introducing something like a quiz night because I actually think that that would be something different.
That's the Balalaika Hotel's general manager, Natalie Boerta, on the occasion of the new Lord's Bar opening. And uh, if you do go and check it out, let me give you a hot tip there. Make sure to order the hotel's legendary handmade kettle fried potato chips. So they actually make these potato chips from scratch at the hotel. They're unbelievably Moorish, uh, beyond belief. And uh, I've also tried to get them to sell me a packet, but no can do. You can only have them when you sit down and have a drink there at the Lord's Bar. From Greater Santon to the rest of the world, this is the Santon Times Hour. Haven't spoken to him in quite some time, but it's great to have him back on the hour. And Chris Bishop, a journalist for African Business Magazine, it's so good to catch up with you again. Yes, Alex, it's good to speak to you too. Chris, coming to us all the way from England, but you are going to be talking African millionaires as we've done many a times on this show. And one of those is social impact investor Nyasha Guatizo. What's happening with her? Well, yeah, I mean, both our uh, case studies this week, they um, also show how Zimbabweans, uh, there's so many millions of them around the world. You know, obviously many left their country for economic reasons. Now they're all doing well. And uh, Nyasha Guatizo in particular, I mean, she grew up in the struggle in Zimbabwe. Both her parents were activists in the days when it was Rhodesia and uh, fighting the Liberation War. Her father helped to hustle uh, President Robert Mugabe over the border in the back of his car to Mozambique in 1975. She says that she had breakfast with him when she was a kid and she didn't know who he was. And she didn't recognise him until he got elected uh, as uh, head of the country, which I thought was quite a nice one. But she came to England with the folks. The folks, they worked on the railways in the UK while they were studying. Uh, The old man was a signalman and her mother worked in like a canteen at one of the stations. She studied there and she tried chemistry, didn't like it, dropped out. And then she started studying social work, which she really liked, and psychotherapy for um, uh, abused and and traumatised children, uh, which turned out to be her calling in life. And what happened was she was working for Camden Council in London doing that very same thing. They had redundancies. They gave 800 quid redundancy money. And we're talking, this is 1992. Sure. So she um, decided to uh, look to see if she could open her own little small home for these children, if she was trained to do it. So she went to 54 addresses in London, nothing doing. The last one was owned by a vicar. Now, this vicar and his wife, it was their house, and they were living in a vicarage around the corner. They wanted to rent it out. So anyway, they asked for £2,500, and she didn't have anywhere near that kind of money. And then, oh, well, Shane goes away. And a week later, the vicar phoned up and said, look, I've spoken to my wife because of what you want to do. We're going to give it to you for three. We'll fit it out at our cost and we'll give you three months rent free to give you a chance to get it going. So she did. She went in there and uh, she even remembers the day in July uh, 1992. And when the vicar came, he gave her the keys and he even gave her like uh, knives and forks to go in the house. And she all of a sudden she had six children. Uh, in there, and um, these children, you got to understand, they're from, the, these were the kids that were coming, unaccompanied minors who were turning up at airports and ports in the UK. Those days, those days in conflict areas, particularly in Africa, families could save up their last $200 uh, and put a child on a plane or a boat to England and hope someone would look after them at the other end. And these kids are turning up, and the councils and the authorities didn't know what to do with them. Um, they only had these big homes that were no good for these severely. I mean, some of these kids were child soldiers. Some of these kids were, like, terribly abused. You don't even want to know. And um, and they were there. So, so they were so 
basically, she set up six children in this home, and then she had to get 25 to 30 professionals to look after them yeah. uh, for 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and she had no money. So all she could pay with these people was bus fare. And uh, she said, look, I'll pay you in November. We start getting money. Anyway, it's amazing because the contracts came in thick and fast. As I say, the, the councils didn't know what to do. And uh, in December that year, she was turning over a million bands. She was. Incredible. So she paid everybody. And then within two uh, years, she set up two more. And then she developed into a chain, which now turns over something like 150 million bands. Goodness me. And this is all sort of a, a social entrepreneurship uh, story. I mean, it's it's doing something good whilst also sort of being sustainable. And it's incredible what she's done. I mean, she's developed this whole network of these sort of homes and therapy centers. I mean, even now she's got a, a farm in Oxfordshire where children can go along. And the way they get therapies, they, they like feed and they look after animals and things, which is like a new, apparently a new way of uh, treating um, sort of severely traumatized children. Incredible. And she lives in Guernsey and uh, she still runs businesses on behalf of her family back in Zimbabwe. But um, yeah, she's, she's a remarkable person. Well, talking about remarkable people, and uh, we're talking about Zimbabweans in this particular instance who seem to be the most resilient and most innovative uh, uh, nation. Uh, and another Zimbabwean is uh, Moya Apsgawa Lentil. Tell me about him. Yeah, well, it's mainly left uh, Zimbabwe, or Rhodesia as it was then, in, when he was about 18 years old. I think he was uh, looking to, like a lot of young people at the time, to avoid military service in a, a war that was uh, coming to an end anyway. And he went to London with a rucksack and 300 pounds. So that's all they were allowed out of the country at the time. And he stayed with relatives. He, he studied there. During some time, he, he pulled pints in London pubs. He painted and decorated, did labouring jobs. And one time when he was studying, he had this particularly large credit bill. So to pay it off, he went, he went over to Switzerland. He had, there was work going there. He got a job on a farm for six months. So just shoveling, you know, cow dung, horse dung, whatever dung. And he worked there, managed to pay off. Eventually, he worked for PwC and got a posting to Australia where his career really took off. It was time when the internet was coming. And he got in on the dot-com boom, him and a mate. He said, we were two two men and a dog. <laughs> he said, we had a company. He said, and we made a fortune, you know. We made a fortune because no one knew the internet then. It was just starting off. Yeah. And we have made an absolute fortune on the internet. And it was so good that they were being approached by companies to uh, to sell. So they went over to Wall Street in New York, and they had two parallel, imagine this, you know, companies trying to buy them out. Um, two, two, you know, at the same time, they had parallel meetings, these guys. And one of the guys, the companies, put in a, um, a legal case against them, accusing them of um, taking their technology, which... They hadn't done it was, but the company said, no, "No, we're just trying to stop you from, you know, selling to someone else." So that didn't work. So eventually, they sold over a weekend for sixty-five million dollars, just the two of them. Sure. So what they were going to do? They were going to get equity in the company, passive income, plus they were going to um, get about two hundred thousand dollars in cash. So they're happy. So Good they're deal. back in Australia. He's bought a big car and all the rest of it. And then he said, you get up in the morning, you have a look at the computer and see you've made another million dollars overnight. 
you know, because of the equity. And then comes the dot-com crash, bang. And That's the whole company collapsed. It lost its value overnight. He said, all we got left was $200,000. And that was it. Finished. And uh, he said it was a real hard lesson in life. And then eventually he came back to Cape Town, where he is now. And he's got this Moya app thing now, which um, is basically data-free shopping. It's a way you can go online and you can do anything you like. You can play games. You can gamble, I think, as well if you want. But you can buy stuff. You can all these sort of things. And uh, he's got something like 6 million people signed up for it. And you don't need data, which, as you know, in South Africa is a big shortage. Wow. But, uh, yeah. Incredible. Well, Chris Bishop, he's a journalist with African Business Magazine, catching up with him again, talking about Africa's business people and millionaires and how they've gone from success to failure and success once more. Chris, it's been great to chat to you on the Saturday Times Hour. We're going to take a quick musical break and more right after the break. It's a good question because lots of people have asked us that, you know, what are you going to do going forward? That's a great question. It's a critically important question. Such a great and uh, interesting question. I have not even thought about that until you've just said it. You're listening to the Santon Times Hour. This is the Santon Times Hour on Mix 93.8 uh, with fats and small turn around. And hopefully the winter turns around and we get back to warmer months. But uh, something to warm us up and he's back at uh, the theatre on the square is Nick Rabinovitz. He's got a new show to make us laugh and roll in the aisles. It's called Rambunctious, which is one of those delicious uh, English words. Uh, I think it means uncontrollably exuberant. And then exuberance, another one of those words. So it's almost like you have to unpack this thing, like sort of uh, Russian dolls. But here to chat to us about uh, his new show is Nick Rabinovitz. Nick, it's good to chat to you again on the Santon Times Hour. Alexander, it's good to see you again. It's always <laughs> nice. You've got such an exuberant, rambunctious energy about you. Well, Nick, thank you so much. <laughs> Tell me a bit more about your show. I mean, last time you were doing a show in Santon, I mean, you had the most incredible marketing campaign lined up. I mean, it was... Uh, full of extremism and uh, and all kinds of exciting things. Yes, in fact, actually, I devote some of this show to discussing the incredible promotional impetus that uh, a terrorist organization gave to the marketing campaign for my previous show. I didn't know what... I don't know how I'm going to sell tickets for this one. I really am at a loss. Well, listen, uh, the usual person would probably boost their post on Facebook or Instagram or whatever. And uh, and this show just got boosted on a totally different platform. Yeah, it really blew up. <laughs> I'll be discussing if you, if you, if dear listener, you're not sure what I'm talking about. Uh, last November, I was in Joburg, perfectly timed with an ISIS terrorist on Pride Parade as well as allegedly me. I devote some time in this show to discussing these, um, what transpired there, Alex. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the topics you're going to be chatting about in this show. And I must say, I did watch your last show, and uh, I think you rocked up on stage with a bulletproof vest, if I remember correctly. But uh, you're also going to be chatting about your son's bar mitzvah. You're going to be chatting about, I mean, a whole range of different things. I mean, what can people expect from Rambunctious? Well, I think the press release was something like, expect my and. What, how does that go? What is that? Uh, I think it was, un, is it unadulterated or highly anticipated? I'm not sure what they mean, but basically I think it means I'll be coming back to the snowy wastes of Johannesburg. So, uh, yeah, I talk about the ISIS thing. I talk about um, a recent uh, tour I did overseas. Many sort of events from my private life 
and which is a problem because some of the people in my private life don't like being part of my public life. So I have to discuss that as well. Particularly my mom, I promised to leave her. Nick, give me an idea of, of what inspired uh, you know this particular set of comedy uh, for this particular show. Kind of the same thing that inspires any show is kind of a collection of life experiences that you write down in notebooks and various places and then try and cobble together to make a show and it's kind of it starts off you start off thinking oh this is awesome and then you start thinking this is tricky and then the third step of the creative process is this is shit and then four is i am shit and then five is this might be okay and then six uh, is this is awesome that's how generally it goes and i mean why do you always choose to come to the theater on the square i mean is there something specific about santon that you enjoy uh, doing your shows here as opposed to anywhere else i particularly enjoy that theater it's kind of it's got this subterranean feel these low ceilings and it's intimate which is very nice for comedy I, it's one of my favorite rooms to do comedy in and then it's kind of got this family feeling Daphne's like my Joburg mom and Nick is everything all right are you okay it's going to be wonderful the audience we've got the members in tonight and so just remember they're they're all you know they're quite ancient and they laugh on the inside but just bear in mind they are laughing but just on the inside and then actually she was amazing during this whole ISIS thing in November I actually uh, when I got the news, I forwarded it to her. It was like a News 24 journalist who broke the story to me, and I sent it to her, and she sent me back a voice note going, Nick, you're such a scream, because she thought I had made the whole thing up for publicity purposes. So the team there are really cool. It's great for comedy, uh, and I have a lot of history there. Well, I mean, let's briefly let's just touch on this because I know we've 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 spoken about this a bit now during this interview. I mean, this this uh, alleged attack or threat that you had on your show. I mean, was there at any point that you were worried about any of this actually being sort of legitimate? And and did you yes. have any people feeding back to you saying, "Listen, you know, be careful," or did the you know did any sort of security cluster or police get involved to to kind of uh, guide you through what is you know not everyday uh, sort of occurrence in South Africa? Yeah, I had various people uh, contacting me, like from Jewish intelligence, that was actually my mother-in-law, to uh, like former Israeli counterintelligence operatives, to people offering me safe houses, to Japanese TV shows. I actually put all of this in the show, in this show. I was going to call it Terra Virgin because that's actually what I told the Japanese TV show when they asked me if this was my first uh time being the target of a terrorist threat i said yes i'm a terror virgin but they didn't understand what i meant by that but anyway uh it was i i was actually i mean i was kind of too busy to really kind of uh, take it all in about a week into that show i kind of had a minor panic attack where i thought it's all calmed down we we had security but we don't anymore Maybe they're just waiting for tonight. I kind of clearly remember that feeling. Yeah. It's, it's when you're not looking. Vest, a bulletproof vest isn't that effective uh, uh, when the venue is blown up by a bomb. So also, that wasn't going to work. 
Well, listen, it, it, it looked impressive. It definitely set the tone. And I think uh, I'd be quite interested to see uh, how you tell this story and so many more in this new show, Rambunctious. It runs from the 25th of July to the 5th of August. So uh, if you're keen to go and you're listening, uh, hop onto CompuTicket. Uh, tickets are 230 Rand. If there's two of you, it'll be 460. And uh, you get to enjoy Nick Rabinovitz uh, at the Theatre on the Square in Santon. And Nick, it's always good to chat to you on the Santon Times Hour. Thanks, my man. And that's it for another Santon Times Hour on Mix 93.8 and as always available on all leading podcast platforms. And like I said, now on Amazon Music and AfriPods. If you want to get in touch, you can email editor at santontimes.co.za. You can connect on social media at Santon Times and visit the website www.santontimes.co.za for all uh, the information that we chatted about this week and a whole bunch of other news and content. Feel free to send through your questions, your comments, your feedback, or uh, your inputs. They're always welcome. And thank you to all my guests who made time to be on the show this week. And as always, Vincenzo, well, <laughs> we got through this week, hopefully without any mistakes. And let's catch it up again next week when we do it all again. And thank you to the Santa Times team as well as everyone at Mix 93.8. And of course, you. Let's connect again next week. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening to the Santon Times Hour. And if you enjoyed it, be sure to share it. 